You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode number 12. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelana Levin and Pontus Bökman. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hey, Sanaleu! Hey, Pontus is back! Yes, I'm back! Yay. Yay. Pontus is oh, back! Oh, I missed you. Did you miss me? <laughs> we missed you a lot, yeah. Uh, very no, it was we, quite, didn't. we didn't. It was quite... <laughs> well, what, some of us did, some of us didn't. But um, it was quite an odd episode last time. I think you did a good job, so that's good. Thank you. As we said, I was uh, skiing. Uh, it was very nice in Austria. But internet was really... Uh, it was the worst I've ever heard about so um i brought my microphone i wanted to be there to to call in via skype but it was totally impossible totally impossible well we appreciate your intention <laughs> <laughs> okay good are you still in one piece yeah i am in one piece and i actually learned something about uh, skiing uh nothing that I'm, i'm not prepared to tell you what it was but i felt that i i was skiing <laughs> i was skiing better at the end of the week so even a An old person like me can learn new tricks. That was good. All right. So it's good to have you back, Pontus. Mm-hmm. Thank uh, you. So we're now back to normal. Mm-hmm. Why don't we jump right into um, what we usually provide on the show? Most of the feedback we've got is about organizing interviews, which is uh, going to be resulting in uh, lots of great and interesting chats we publish uh, on the show. Stay tuned for those. But if you have something in mind, don't forget, you can always write to us. Whatever it is about, we are open for your suggestions. Let it be people to interview, topics uh, you want to draw the attention of others to, events and talks, etc., etc. Just keep them coming. Yep, indeed. Um, you can write to us, email us on info at theesp.eu and contact us on Twitter. And we are on at espodcast underscore eu handle. And you can find us on Facebook and we also have a website, which is theesp.eu. Yay. Thanks very much. We have a few events uh, to promote here mostly exclusively to be honest for the coming week in the UK um that's because we haven't been told of any other kind of events uh, anywhere in Europe so this is why we have to emphasize that we rely on your or the information provided by you the listeners so please let us know if you have events to promote so what do we have for the for the coming week Well, on the 3rd of March in Middlesbrough, the Teesside Skeptics in the Pub are organizing an event about GMOs, genetically modified organisms, and the speaker is Miles Power. Well, that's that's an interesting topic and yeah. an important one as well. Very much. The public so. does have an opinion, but uh, usually lacks the knowledge. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And there's yeah. a lot of discussion around Europe right now about regulations and stuff that that's very important to follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On the same date in Barnsley, third uh, of March, there's another skeptics in the pub. Uh, Dr. Tom Basindale is going to talk about stronger, faster, higher, uh, and that is about drugs in sports. 
Mm. That's interesting too. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So on the 3rd of March, the same day in Liverpool, the, there'll be a Skeptics in the Pub social. If you're around, come join them. Um, I'm sure they're going to have a good time there. Merseyside Skeptics, yay. On the 7th of March, the next Monday, there's going to be a London Skeptics in the Pub event where someone who we mentioned before uh, will give a talk. It's uh, Dr. Kat Arney. Herding Hemingway's Cats, How Do Our Genes Work? is the title of the talk. And uh, it's about her book she's on a tour with. I've, I think I've talked about this, that uh, I'm currently reading the book. When I'm done, uh, we would like to have Kat Arnie on the show. And uh, preliminary, she said yes to that invitation. So uh, we might be able to talk to her about yeah. those uh, It's topics. very exciting. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so um, this event will be happening on the 19th of March. So there's still a couple of weeks away, but we thought we'll mention it anyway, because it's going to be actually a mini conference in Cambridge called ThinkCon 2016. A few prominent scientists and, and, and uh, skeptics will be speaking at that event uh, with lots of interesting talks. Uh, check them out. It's ThinkCon in Cambridge on 19th of March. And uh, Kit Arney is going to give a talk there as well. Yeah, by she's, the way. she's yeah, she's, el- <laughs> she's all over everywhere. the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is which is good because she's an amazing science educator, and uh, she's promoting skeptical ideas as well. And I did ask her about GMOs here in Brighton, and uh, she said a very important thing. It was uh, that she's a bit disappointed with uh, biotechnology companies because they were not communicating what they're doing at the beginning. And now the damage is done. And uh, it's basically firefighting what skeptics and science educators have to do. And uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Hmm. Thanks very much, guys. And you, uh, dear listeners, who are interested in events across Europe, don't forget that there is a skeptical calendar out there. It's full of skeptic events, not only for the coming week, but many, many more to come during the year. And uh, we're going to be updating the calendar on a daily basis. So don't forget to check it out regularly. And you can find it on our website, which is... TheESP.eu Yeah, and there is a menu item on that website, which is Events in Europe. Yeah, don't forget to check it out. Thank you very much. And I think it's time to move on to our interview with uh, Andrew Copson. On every episode, we interview a person representing an organization or project either from a certain European country or stretching across borders. This time, we have here with us Andrew Copson, um, Chief Executive of the British Humanist Association and President of the International Humanist and Ethical Union, also former Director of the European Humanist Federation. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Well, we are living in difficult days. Uh, what is it like to be a humanist these days? Well, I suppose I can give an answer to that from, from two points of view. Firstly, from my work with the British Humanist Association and then my work with the International Humanist and Ethical Union. In an awful lot of countries in the Western world, Britain included, uh, life is pretty easy and pretty good uh, for people with non-religious beliefs, for people who are humanists. Um, it's not perfect because, of course, in many parts of uh, even in, in the Western world, there are established religions and these may interfere with people's lives in all sorts of ways. In Britain, for example, a third 
of our publicly funded state schools are run by religious organisations. Uh, we still have an established church. They interfere a lot in government policy, especially health and education policy, and that's, you know, to, to many people's disadvantage. But of course, uh, in terms of comparing the situation of humanists in Britain with the situation of humanists in the rest of the world, it's, you know, almost paradise. So if we look at the international uh, dimension, there are parts of the world where things are very bad, um, but more importantly, getting worse. So countries like Egypt, countries like Saudi Arabia, countries like Malaysia, like Indonesia, uh, mostly uh, the countries where things are getting worse are countries with established Islamic religion of some sort. And in those places, we're seeing increasing discrimination against non-religious people, including humanists, increasing persecution of humanists, uh, even murders and official uh, persecution uh, of, uh, of non-religious people, imprisonment, uh, and so on and so forth. So, you know, internationally, an extremely mixed picture. But in the areas where it's difficult to be a humanist, it's getting a lot worse. Do you also see some good trends or just the bad ones all over the world? Apart from the fact that, of course, in, in developed countries, the situation is not that bad. Of course, there's great cause for hope uh, all, all around the world. One of the very positive trends is, of course, a certain globalization, a certain internationalization of culture and of communications. I mean, if you want to take a more optimistic or a sort of more hopeful analysis of the sort of things that are happening that I've just described, growing persecution of humanists in countries like Egypt, uh, Saudi, Malaysia, and Indonesia, uh, and so on. And you look at why that persecution is happening. Well, one of the main reasons that it's happening is that humanists and other non-religious people are more visible than they have ever been before and are increasingly visible, increasingly organizing, increasingly uh, coming together. And they're using all sorts of new technologies, social media especially, to do that. So in a, in a weird sort of way, the fact that persecution is increasing, and that's obviously a bad thing uh, for individuals uh, who find themselves uh, you know, deprived of liberty or life or, or whatever. Although persecution is increasing in that way, it's because of quite a good thing that's happening, which is that for the first time, humanists in these countries, non-religious activists in these countries are able to organize, are able to come to humanist beliefs as a result of free exercise of uh, their own reason and engagement with new media. And that's obviously a positive trend. So the very negative trend, which is the growing persecution, conceals what could be seen as quite a positive trend, which is that these ideas, our ideas, uh, are increasingly exposed internationally, and more people are coming to understand them, and more people are coming to see uh, that humanist beliefs and values are the ones that they that make sense to them and that describe their own worldview. So th there's always hope, you know, even in the darkest uh, of of hours, even in the darkest of, of situations. And do you think those kind of pulling forces? Uh, will be enough to change that cause for the better? I mean, to actually make a change in the long run? Po a positive change internationally? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, I don't know. Um, I mean, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fool's game to make predictions. You know, never make predictions because, as we know from all of science fiction, you know, most of the time you're going to be proven wrong. But however, having said that, I am going to make a prediction um, because I think that it is difficult for authoritarian forces, whether religious 
uh, authoritarian forces or political, you know, dictatorships, totalitarian uh, regimes or the sort of fascism that you see in countries like Saudi Arabia today, clerical and, and, and crown fascism. I think it's very difficult once the genie is out of the bottle, you know, uh, for yeah, authoritarian yeah. forces to clamp down on free human beings forever. I mean, you know, governments tried to uh, regulate and stifle the printing press. They tried to, they're still trying to, uh, obviously regulate and stifle uh, the internet itself. Um, but I think that, especially with social media and especially with small networks, and especially with the tide of globalization, which in cultural terms, I think, seems irreversible. It might be reversed, but it seems at the moment irreversible. I think with all of those uh, forces, uh, I don't think that authoritarian establishments are going to be able to maintain their hold uh, for much longer. Oh, that sounds very hopeful. And uh, I think we, we share that optimism. Well, yes, I mean, that that's okay. But, but all we're really saying is that the current authoritarian forces won't be able to uh, maintain their grip forever. No doubt they'll be followed by other <laughs> authoritarian forces that might do better. Yeah, but of course, you, you must be in possession of that kind of optimism to be able to do the work you're doing. Because uh, you are one of the most prominent figures of humanism internationally. So... There, there must be something that you really hope to achieve with, uh, with your activities. I do think that even if we can't reverse long-term trends, I think it would still be worth promoting humanism, even if we were only effecting, you know, change on a smaller level for a number of people currently living. You know, I don't think that it's any... Uh, I don't think you have to believe that ultimately your actions will lead to a complete revolution in order to do good you know, for people in the here and now. So I think that's that's worth uh, saying. But how did you actually get involved in the humanist movement? Well, I'd been, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of typical of a of people, I guess, in Britain uh, of my sort of age, or many of us, in that um, I had never been religious. Um, I wasn't brought up in a religious way. My parents weren't religious. It's probably slightly more unusually for me my grandparents and my great-grandparents also weren't uh, religious and, and never had been. So I was brought up in a totally non-religious way. So I was aware of the British Humanist Association actually from quite a young age uh, because my uh, my mother had been a member and I, I knew of it um, in general. Um, and in my school lessons on what's still called religious education uh, in England... Uh, which is a school curriculum subject where we study religions and beliefs, I learned about humanism there as well. So from a very early age, I was able to identify the, you know, the approach to life I had as being described by the word humanism. I first joined the British Humanist Association when I was a student, around 2002, I think it was, um, when they launched a big campaign, which is still ongoing, uh, which I later on went to, to run, actually, once I started working. But it was a campaign against faith schools. There's a big increase in 2002, uh, encouraged by the then government and by the Church of England, which wanted to try and get more religious control into the school system. Um, a big campaign to increase the proportion and the number of state public schools that were controlled by religious organisations, and also to diversify them. So we've had for a long time Catholic and Anglican 
uh, and a small number of Jewish schools. And there was a, a government initiative to expand that to have Muslim schools, Hindu schools, Sikh schools, you know, really as many <laughs> religious schools as they could get. Um, and the British Humanist Association was the organization that was really prominent in uh, bringing this issue into public consciousness and then taking the government on locally and nationally to try and uh, prevent this tide. And so I joined uh, the BHA, the British Human Association, then to support that campaign, and I remained a member of it ever since. When I left university and went out into the world of work, um, I decided that I had some spare time and so that I would volunteer for the, for the BHA as well. Um, and so I started volunteering in the office, and really through a series of uh, lucky retirements, lucky for me, I mean, um, <laughs> I, got, I got sort of one job after the other. Uh, at the BHA until eventually I became chief executive um, uh, quite a few years ago now. I mean, I, th I think it was only yesterday, but I, I, I was reminded uh, this week that it was about six years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you look so young is what you're about to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we had really had the pleasure of meeting you. I think it was uh, QED. Oh, yes. Question Explore Discover in Manchester. Which yes, is, for me, for uh, me, definitely QED. I remember meeting uh, Which is a, a, a skeptical event. Um, so, are you a skeptic yourself? I, I would understand, or I would say that of uh, humanism and skepticism go hand in hand in a way. But do you also care about uh, scientific issues and uh, science versus pseudoscience topics? Yes, of course. I mean, I think what the word humanist means is someone who uh, takes a certain approach to life. Um, and that approach to life is characterized by skepticism and the scientific method of science. And when it comes to learning, you know, true facts about reality. Now, also, the word humanist includes uh, moral uh, and sort of existential aspects. You know, a humanist is someone who puts human welfare and the welfare of other, uh, you know, sentient beings at the center of their morality. A humanist is someone who uh, creates their own meaning in life and thinks that, you know, there's no ultimate meaning to the universe, but also a humanist, part and parcel of the humanist worldview, of the humanist approach to life, is scepticism. So I think they don't just go hand in hand, humanism and scepticism. I think, you know, humanism entails scepticism. It must do. Um, and so I absolutely uh, take, a, take a skeptical approach, like all humanists would, um, to, you know, questions of uh, what's true, or what's real. Uh, and so on and so forth. I mean, I suppose you're sort of also asking uh, a question not just about uh, scepticism um, with a small s, but but also sort of the, the skeptic sort of movement, because there is obviously a, there are organisations and networks of people who uh, go in for sort of you know group group scepticism or whatever <laughs> organised yeah. organised scepticism, um, which uh, which I've been to many uh, skeptic. Uh, groups around the UK and in other in other countries too, like in Sweden um, and, and other places as well. Um, and I think there's a great affinity between organisations that describe themselves as sceptic and, and humanist organisations. Uh, I think there's a big overlap. And often, often in the UK, I don't know what it's like in other countries so much, but often in the UK, um, it's it's even the same people quite often who are running these local groups. And I think actually when I went to Romania and when I went to Sweden, uh, again, it was the same people running the humanist and the sceptic groups there too. So I think there's a tremendous affinity. I mean, you ask, would I describe myself as a sceptic? I don't go around uh, sort of describing myself that often. But, um, you know, if I was asked if I, uh, you know, are you a sceptic in, in, in these ways, of course I'd say yes. And of course, um, Andrew, I have recently attended a, um, a launch of the, um, the new book, 
the uh, handbook of humanism oh yes where, where actually um those definitions are you know uh, written about in a few chapters from different um uh authors will you just talk a little bit about that book of course well i don't have to be uh, encouraged uh, <laughs> to talk about that book um i hope that everyone who's listening will buy it uh, i doubt it because it's an academic textbook actually and it's quite expensive um, but maybe they'll get it out of the library yeah it's it's, it's the first uh multi-contributor academic book on humanism uh, for quite some time. So it's published by Wiley Blackwell. Uh, it's the Handbook of Humanism, and I edited it over the course of the last couple of years together with um, the humanist philosopher A.C. Grayling. And you're right, there is a section in that book where different people contribute chapters on different aspects of humanism. So the first chapter is, you know, what is humanism, giving you just people an introduction to the whole idea. Um, and then there's a section on the different parts of the humanism worldview. So there's a chapter about morality by Anthony Grayling. There's a chapter about reason and science by the philosopher Stephen Law. Uh, a chapter about death uh, and death being, you know, the end of personal existence, which is obviously a very important belief uh, of humanists. Um, and a chapter about naturalism and, you know, the the naturalist aspect of, of, of a humanist approach so by the philosopher Brendan Larbor. So that's a really interesting section of the book, actually, um, that was great fun to edit because uh, it sort of breaks down what we talk about when we talk about humanism um, into those different you know, aspects, and that's very interesting. There are other sections in the book, um, sections that look at uh, humanism in different times uh, and places in the world. So there's a section where there are chapters on classical China, classical India, uh, ancient Europe and uh, the Arabic world in the Middle Ages. Uh, they, I mean, they're really fascinating because, of course, one of the misconceptions that people often have is that this this worldview that we call humanism today is somehow necessarily a very recent or a very modern or a very Western approach to life. In fact, you find uh, the same approach to life that, that that we call humanism really wherever you find across history men and women who have the opportunity to think for themselves. Uh, about the world around them, and they come to humanist conclusions quite often. Then there's a section about um, consequences of humanism. So that contains chapters on subjects like counselling. Uh, the humanist view of the human being obviously has very has had a very profound impact on the ideas about counselling and therapy and so on. And there are chapters about politics and uh, about literature and all sorts of other uh, interesting areas of human life and society where humanism has had consequences. And I mean, they're, they're really fascinating chapters too. And then in the end, there's a section about debates within humanism. So, you know, does, does a humanist view mean that you don't think that there's any meaning at all? You know, is morality completely relative on this, you know, uh, on this view? And of course, they're very, very interesting as well. I think that the, the best thing about, the, or the most enjoyable thing about editing that book and it's sold relatively well so far, you know, to universities, obviously, as I say, it's a, that, that's the audience for it, uh, but your listeners can take it out of their local library, I'm sure. Um, one of the most enjoyable things about uh, editing the book was how you saw, we saw, Ant and I both saw as we edited it, that there were huge opportunities for the future for even more writing on these subjects, because only very recently, actually, has uh, the study of the humanist worldview itself become you know, of academic interest. For a very long time, the humanist worldview was sort of implicit in lots of people's minds and in lots of our societies. It had become, you know, the sort of 
the background music almost of Western culture, the wallpaper of, of, of Western culture. And because of that, it means it wasn't made explicit and talked about and thought about and studied in the same way that uh, some other uh, approaches to life have been. And I think that's very important uh, that we sort of correct that. And I think that we look forward to the, uh, the time when there are people writing, you know, chapters, uh, similar sort of uh, works about other countries uh, in the past, for example, at the, at the event that you were actually in. The, I think there, was, there were people from the audience who were saying you know, they'd really like to read something about uh, different sorts of humanism in, in Africa, uh, different sort of indigenous philosophies that, that corresponded with humanism in Africa and in other parts of the world. And also, of course, consequences of humanism for all other sorts of uh, areas of human endeavour that we didn't manage to cover in that book. So I think the most exciting thing about that book, actually, um, aside from the content of it, which is very interesting for many people, is also the way that it indicates uh, future uh, very fruitful lines of inquiry for other academics. So I hope that they, they take up that challenge. Well, that sounds, that sounds exciting. Well, <laughs> not, not just interesting. Buy a copy. <laughs> <laughs> But other than um, writing up new things and uh, feeding the academic uh, community with with uh, material to to look at and uh, and put some uh, do some research on, what other challenges uh, and and tasks are there for both the PHA and uh, the International Humanist and Ethical Union? Well, of course, you know, feeding the academic community is the least of our worries. I mean, you know, we <laughs> we hardly we hardly do any of that at all. Um, I mean, all humanist organizations around the world uh, engage in the same three types of activity, uh, almost all of them. So, you know, there's, there's one area of work which is all about the provision of community services to non-religious people. Now, the sort of services that the, these humanist organizations are providing uh, may be different, uh, depending on which country they're in, depending on the social needs in those countries. But the, the general area of service provision is one that almost all humanist organizations are involved in. So, for example, the BHA uh, trains celebrants to provide non-religious funerals, weddings, other important ceremonies to mark important stages of life. Um, we have a celebrant program for that. We also have a pastoral support program where we train people who can go into hospitals and prisons to work with non-religious people, listen to them, give them moral support and so on, in the way that chaplains do for religious people. In the past, the, the BHA has run uh, housing associations, adoption agencies, when these areas of social service provision were largely confined to religious organisations and religious people. In, in, in other countries, you know, the humanist organisations provide uh, whatever social services their societies need. So, for example, in Uganda... The Ugandan Humanist Association uh, provides schools, secular schools, uh, for children and young people, and, you know, the, 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 whatever all across the world uh, the need is. So that's one area of activity, uh, social service provision to the non-religious. Then there's a uh, an advocacy role, uh, a political, public policy, advocacy-type role that all humanist organisations have. So, you know, campaigning for particular change, uh, maybe with government, maybe with other uh, public authorities, and maybe even in wider society. So, for example, the BHA has campaigns in about 21 different policy areas. Uh, most of them are to do with trying to uh, bring about uh, state secularism, political secularism. 
in the UK, uh, a separation of church and state, uh, and a situation where people have freedom of belief, and they're not discriminated against because of their religion or belief uh, on, on any grounds. Now, that means all sorts of things in Britain. That means trying to reform the school system uh, to take away religious discrimination from the school system. It means trying to reform our constitution to try and remove the automatic rights that Church of England bishops still have in our country to sit in our parliament, which is <laughs> almost unique in the world. And, um, and and a lot of other campaigning work about that. But it also, it's not just secularist campaigning work, there's all sort of public ethical uh, issue campaigning. So, for example, on, on issues like assisted dying for the terminally ill, or on uh, the circumcision of children, or on sexual and reproductive health rights like abortion or contraception, all sorts of social issues as well as uh, social ethical issues, as well as secularist issues. And, and in other parts of the world, of course, humanist organisations are active uh, on a public platform in whatever issues in, are involved in their own national context. Almost always education, of course, because education uh, and religion are so entwined in so many places. So there's that role. There's that public policy advocacy campaigning role as well as the community services role. And the third type of activity that almost every humanist organisation in the world is involved in is sort of education and awareness raising of humanism itself. So this might be in schools. The BHA, for example, produces resources, you know, textbooks and classroom resources for teachers to teach about humanism. Um, we train speakers to go into schools to talk about humanism, humanist speakers. Um, so it might be in schools, but it might also be just directed at the general public. So, for example, last year, uh, or maybe it was the year before last now, anyway, quite recently, uh, we had a, a series of videos uh, narrated by Stephen Fry, a series of animations about humanism, which we put out there onto you know, online um, to try and sort of approach the general public. So it might be in schools, but it might just be to the general public, this aim of educating, of raising awareness about humanism, and really just trying to give people whose views and values and beliefs are non-religious already uh, the confidence that they might lack. You know, often in many countries in the world, even in Britain, which is highly secular society in all sorts of ways, non-religious people can be made to feel that their values and beliefs are sort of second best to religions, that they're somehow lacking, that their beliefs are somehow maybe incoherent, they don't really fit together, they're just the ones they happen to have. And so humanist organisations, the BHA, but across the world, are engaged in the business of saying to those people, no, they, your beliefs aren't second best, they are coherent, um, they are rational, they are ethical, they are fulfilling, they are shared by people both in your country and around the world, and they've inspired some of the men and women in the history of humanity who've done uh, some of the greatest things uh, for the benefit um, of humanity. And I think that's a very important role that humanist organisations have, and every humanist organisation in the world does that, that sort of outreach work to let people know that there is a word for what they believe, and that word is humanism. So those three areas of work, community services, advocacy and campaigning, education and awareness raising about humanism, pretty much describe all the work that's done by humanist organisations in every country. Now, on the international level, the International Humanist and Ethical Union, of course, does a, a slightly different sort of work in that our role there is to bring together those organisations from different parts of the world so that they can learn from each other, you know, so that uh, we can twin our member organisations up uh, so they can learn from you know other organisations in different parts of the world. That's extremely important. 
We also resource and train humanist leaders uh, from countries where the organizations are perhaps newer, less experienced. Um, and we also represent international humanism in the international institutions. So at, in the United Nations in Geneva and New York, at the Council of Europe in Strasbourg, at the African Commission for Human and People's Rights. Uh, we're there to provide that sort of international uh, lobbying advocacy work uh, that will unite humanist organizations under, under a single umbrella. We've heard about this um, big court case that British Humanist uh, Association won recently. Uh, well, luckily, luckily won. Yes. Um, <laughs> can you please tell us about this uh, important victory and what it was about? Well, that was a very good case, actually. I mean, the, the UK government has not responded very well to their defeat, I have to say. Um, but, uh, yes, the court, the court case was a, was a total victory and we were very pleased. So, in, and, and in fact, the, the case is interesting across Europe because it was relying on uh, various rights in the European Convention on Human Rights. So, you know, theoretically, the case is uh, replicable uh, in, other, in other countries that are members of the Council of Europe. So there were three sets of parents um, who went to court and we supported them in this. And what they were arguing was that well, let me give a bit of background. In England and, and Wales, but the, this case was in England, in England there is a compulsory curriculum subject uh, of religious education. And what that subject contains has changed over time. When it was first introduced, you know, over 70 years ago, um, it was basically Christian, confessional Christian instruction. Now, in non-church schools, um, it is education about uh, a range of different religions. Uh, Christianity, definitely, Islam, almost always, um, but also Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and so on, uh, at different points in the curriculum. Now, in the UK, uh, which is a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights, parents have the right to have their children taught about uh, their own beliefs um, and also to receive a broad and balanced uh, curriculum delivered in a plural pluralistic manner. That's uh, one of the rights that we all have under the European Convention across the whole continent. And so what these parents were saying was that they they were being failed by the system because non-religious beliefs, such as humanism, and humanism was given the, as the example of really the, you know, the principle, the main non-religious worldview in the UK, um, their, their beliefs weren't being taught about in their children's education uh, and that the curriculum as a whole, therefore, wasn't being delivered in a pluralistic manner, objectively and inclusively. And we, we won the case. And although the government tries to appeal, their appeal was rejected, um, which was second bit of good news. And so that does mean that the situation in the UK now is that the law requires that non-religious beliefs are treated fairly equitably uh, in the curriculum. So... Um, what quite what the government is going to do about that is not clear <laughs> because one of the problems with winning a court case is that you win and then you know what happens next is not necessarily in your hands mm -hmm. um, but certainly um, schools local authorities and over time the government should now have to change their practice to accommodate that ruling so we were very very pleased Excellent. well that that's a big win <laughs> yes yes um, it was really, so... the first time that this principle had been established in any legal case wow and that like is you, impressive. Yeah. And like you said, uh, Andrew, maybe um, 
other European countries, when they come to overcome this uh, this uh, hurdle, they'll be able to look back and use that as a, as a good, you know, oh, definitely. example. Yeah, definitely. The, the, I mean, the authorities that were relied on in our in in our own lawyers' arguments uh, were, you know, all under the European Convention, mm. you know, applicable really to to any jurisdiction that allows arguments under the European Convention. Yeah, and that's sort of uh, what we're trying to do as well, you know, to uh, bring people on like yourself who can then uh, speak to the wider audience across Europe and say, look, guys, this is what we've done and you can replicate it or we've got an expertise. So that's great. And these examples are very important, especially in the case of some European countries as well, when uh, the directions are completely the opposite. Uh, when when governments are trying to take control over uh, religious education as well and trying to force them into going down this or that road. Yeah. Yeah, to mention um, one of the countries I know the best, it's uh, where I'm from, it's Hungary. So, uh, well, we are facing that kind of problem right now. Yeah, well, I mean, Hungary is a very difficult situation uh, in yeah. all sorts of ways. I mean, one of the one of the one of the campaigns that the European Humanist Federation is working on at the moment um, is a citizens' petition across Europe to try and have uh, Hungary action taken against Hungary by the European Commission for uh, what the what the European Humanist Federation thinks is basically a, a series of violations of democracy and and the rule of law and human rights and human rights <laughs> yeah. Yeah, within Hungary. Um, so hopefully, uh, one of the things that we can all do across Europe in the next uh, 12 or 14 months is encourage people, encourage EU citizens in particular, to sign up to that that that, that petition. Um, if you, they need a million signatures uh, to have to have action taken by the European Commission. So I mean, I think that what you're doing is a very good idea, and there are so many issues now that we can take action on together as European citizens. Um, that I think it's really worth doing because churches and other uh, authoritarian organizations are very, very good at mobilizing on a Europe-wide basis. I mean, when I was uh, heading the IQ delegation to the Council of Europe in Strasbourg, you, and even in, and in Vienna as well, at the OSCE, which is another international institution that's based, based in Europe, um, you see all the time extremely well-organized uh, religious delegations, especially from the Holy See, from the Catholic Church, um, <laughs> but also, from, yeah, I mean, really very strong, of course, but also from the Lutheran uh, denominations and the Orthodox as well, you know, really, really well-funded, well-organized, extremely powerful, well-connected lobby groups that operate on a Europe-wide level. And so I think really uh, humanists and other non-religious activists have to come together on the Europe-wide level as well. And I think that that's increasingly important. Uh, Andrew, can you please, do you know where people can find that petition? You said that the petition needs a million signatures and how can they get involved? You Maybe you can distribute this link when you... Uh, yeah, on the show notes. We as well, but it's, uh, it's actfordemocracy.eu. Yeah, okay, excellent. We'll, we'll mention that. Definitely. Yeah, it's www.actfordemocracy.eu. Okay. Well, it's 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 a weird situation, right? When you when you actually try to encourage people uh, to sign a petition against your own country, yes. uh, of course that means that it's not against my country; it's against the leaders of my country, which is, is that, which makes a huge difference. That's, that's right. Yeah, yeah. 
so yeah, this is a very important thing I think that you just said about um, the trying to take action uh, on the European level as well. And uh, obviously, this is uh, part of the thing uh, that we, we're trying to do to provide a forum for that. But uh, what is the most prominent European level humanist organization? There is a there is a pan-European organization called the European Humanist Federation. All right. Uh, which is extremely good at lobbying the EU institutions and uh, also at the Council of Europe uh, in Strasbourg. So like, just like IHEU, they are an organisation of organisations and their website is humanistfederation.eu. It's well worth taking a look at, at that because uh, apart from anything else, they have a good uh, list of the different organisations across Europe on their website. Um, but individuals can also sign up for the newsletter as well. So, yeah, it's the European Humanist Federation which is directing the action against Hungary, and that really is a role coordinating uh, the different humanist organisations in Europe. I was on the board for some years of the European Humanist Federation, and it was extremely uh, enjoyable, uh, not least because it was such an effective organisation doing such good work. So I definitely think that people should uh, get involved with that. Oh, it's amazing! It's amazing that um, I've I've always tried to to find out what the difference is uh, between the humanist and the skeptical movement in in that sense, in in the level of activism uh, that that is put into it. I mean, whatever I see is you just mentioned the European Humanist Federation being being very active and 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 doing a great job. Still, there is this European level pan-European skeptical organization, the European Council of Skeptical Organization, still there is no lobbying activity whatsoever. So so we should really get there and try to do something about it uh, that that um, as well. I suppose the more the more the more the better. Um but I, I guess that the uh uh I mean the Euro the European Humanist Federation has very good lobbying staff and good connection to the European Commission, so I'm sure that that, that sketchy organizations could work with them on that. Oh well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Um yeah. Well uh yeah, yeah, we should we should really look into that. But to sum it up, what would you say to those listeners who are not really familiar with the, the, the humanist movement and uh, are mostly into the skepticism f uh, side of things, uh, focusing mainly on pseudoscientific topics. What would you like to say to them as an advice or what would you like to ask them? Well, I'd like to, tell them, I'd like to ask them to join their humanist organization uh, locally or nationally um, or European-wide or internationally, because I think the good thing about humanist organisations is that they can take action on a number of different fronts. It's not just the community services work, it's not just the campaigning work, it's not just the advocacy work and the education and public understanding and awareness work. It's, it's a package of work altogether. And I think that we benefit, really, uh, all our different organisations, whether they're uh, secularist, sceptic or humanist, uh, when we work together. Uh, join each other's organizations and, and cooperate. So I think that almost every skeptic I've ever met um, has you know, been a humanist, whether they knew it or not. So I'd encourage them to get involved. Great. That sounds good. Well, Andrew Copson, uh, it has been a great pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. 
Thank Thanks you. a lot, Andrew. Thank you very much, and good luck with your excellent initiative. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, guys, I don't know how you feel, but I really like this interview. Mm-hmm. It was very uplifting. And one of the reasons why is because of the idea and the concept of lobbying for skeptics. Mm-hmm. I think the yeah. the skeptic movement can learn and, and collaborate more uh, with uh, the humanists in, in this point. Yeah. Uh, this, uh, in this way absolutely because humanists um a humanist movement got it right in so many areas and they're now uh pushing for legal change like with faith schools um and education etc so absolutely yeah. yeah sure yeah and andrew was so nice about the idea of of collaboration between skeptics and and humanists so yeah don't that let this idea just wash away and vanish from the movement okay i think this is it for today um this is what we had time for and uh next week we're coming back with the regular items and the regular segments with pontus back (laughs) i promise i'll be there okay just keep your promise okay (laughs) always do always do okay uh thanks very much guys thank Thank you you. talk to you next week all right bye-bye bye-bye goodbye This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe Bloody train! I'm sorry. I it's that's what you. It's no, either it's that. Fine. It's no, it's in front of me. Oh, sorry. Okay. I I thought you you can hear my train, but but no, I no, still no, have... it's gone. Yeah. I want a train too. <laughs> Everybody's got a train, but me. I can oh. train you. <laughs> oh my god, Andres, really? <laughs> By the way, we're forming a um the the ESP choir. You're gonna be our precautionist. Yeah, I will do this. Oh yeah, that's very nice. <laughs> oh, you you will you'll also have to do the bass because you have the the deepest. That's it. That's it. No, yeah, not the deepest thoughts, but the deepest deepest voice. No, I didn't say I didn't say the deepest thoughts. <laughs> no, let's try. <laughs>